Well, hello everyone. Um, yes, I'm hoping to... Uh, well, actually, I was going to get you to ask um, lots of questions of yourselves in this talk and uh, maybe even talk to the person next to you, but um, I was told I have to definitely finish at three, so um, I'm probably going to do more talking to you than getting you to talk amongst yourselves. But, um, yeah, I'd like to, in a way, just... Um, yeah, get you to ask yourself a number of questions, maybe go away with, some, with those questions and reflect on them. So my talk is Life, Death and Mystery, a Buddhist Perspective. Well, the Buddhist perspective actually is my perspective, because I'm a Buddhist, so I'm going to talk about life and death from my perspective. And uh, I will say something about the Buddhist, traditional Buddhist perspective um, and so forth. Life, Death and Mystery... Well, actually, um, I added mystery because I actually always think that life is a mystery. Death is certainly a mystery. And it's all just very mysterious. Um, and um, a lot of people don't have time to think about these things. And some of the things, like death, is a bit frightening, talking about thinking about it, because there's no clear answer. It's not like you can experience death, come back and say, oh yeah, I know what death's like. Um, some people do, but uh, it's very, very rare. Um, people lose consciousness and technically die and then come back to life. But, um, so it's something you're left sort of wondering about. And I'm one of those sort of people that can't stop wondering. I started wondering, wondering, no, wondering, no, wondering, <laughs> reflecting, um, when I was very young. Um, I wish I hadn't, but it just happened to me. And um, one night I went to bed. I was living in London in a little flat with my parents. And uh, I think my brother was asleep in the bed next to me. And I was uh, lying in bed. I'm pretty sure it was a Saturday night because my cousins were playing cards with my parents in the other room. And I just was lying there and probably looking at the ceiling. And then I just became aware that I was alive. I, just, I think I was about eight or seven or eight when this happened. I became aware that I was alive and I thought, ah, oh, how did I get here? And like, I was aware of sheets on my body. It was, it, was, it was difficult to explain, actually. It was as though consciousness dawned on me that I was alive. And um, I think that was the beginning of me just starting to ask questions of things. So I thought, you know, how did I get here? And I knew it was something to do with my parents and, you know, that they had to do something to... Um, get me there. I must have been eight actually because I had some sort of rudimentary ideas about sex and um, and then I thought well how did they get there? Well they had their parents and you know it just went on and on and on until I wondered how the first people got there and then I knew from school and everything that God created them and that was all very very well but then if I just stopped there everything would have been fine but of course I didn't I wanted to know who created God and um, then I suddenly had this moment of complete sheer terror because I thought if, some, if God was created, there must have been another God before that God that created that God. And at the end of the day, there was no answer, was there? Because however far back you go, there was always something before. So it, I suddenly had this terrifying moment um, which frightened me so much I had to go into my parents and tell them that I, 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 was, I was crying, because I was so frightened. 
And I couldn't tell them what I was thinking because I think it would, it would completely freak them out and make them cry. And I thought the whole world would just melt down. But, and even now when I remember it, I can still feel physically that fear in me because it's such a mystery. If you rely on your sort of rational mind to keep going back and you ask, you know, well, if you can ask the question, which you can't really, but it's sort of a notional idea, that what was there before the beginning? Well, of course, then there must have been a beginning to that question. And that really is a freaky question to ask. It's a really, if you, it probably could lead to madness, I suspect, if one spent too long um, contemplating it. So I suggest you don't bother. Um, and uh, I, I went to my parents and I told them, I used to have nightmares anyway, so I told them I was having a nightmare because I didn't want to upset them by getting them thinking about this um, question that obviously had no answer. And um, over the next few weeks and days, I kept coming back to this and I I had to sort of develop um, strategies to stop myself thinking like that because I knew there was no answer. And, and, and every time I realised there was no answer, I, I just like sh- shook with terror, uh, literally. And it was a horrible thing to happen to a small child and um, it probably made all sorts of... If I had a trauma in my life, that was probably it. You know, it was an existential anxiety that was so intense, it, it made me feel like vomiting. It was complete nausea. And um, later on, I discovered that it wasn't such an uncommon thing, um, experience to have, and um, various people have written um, about such things. But uh, it did leave me um, wondering, and... I resolved the the issue, I guess, by using two strategies. One was to completely distract myself from the question. Every time the the question came up, it was like dropping onto some railway lines where I knew it was going to lead, and I had to just quickly get myself off them. So I developed the ability to just stop myself thinking about things and just think about something nice. Um, Probably, you know, it was sort of about sensual things later on, so I got a bit probably embroiled thinking a lot about sensual delights and things throughout my life as a way of just distracting myself from this terrifying question. When I was about 13, um, in mathematics, I was quite good at mathematics. Um, I was very bad at English and languages, but I was good at mathematics. And I, I liked graphs and I liked equations and things like that. And it occurred to me, I won't, I won't go into the ins and outs of it, it's a bit complicated, but it occurred to me that actually, um, like a lot of mathematics, you only um, can use part of them for solving sort of problems. And, and um, I, I, I came to the conclusion that the rational mind was very, very limited, that it could only really deal with um, um, practical things, basically. Um, it could deal with immensely complicated and amazing practical um, practical things like flying men to the moon and and so forth but it couldn't answer this question about the beginning and I, I even wondered if you know there was a, a question like this I started thinking about language a little bit like you know does it make sense to ask what was before the beginning what's beyond infinity since infinity is like forever what's beyond forever so it doesn't really make sense in the end Anyway, I, um, I just carried on um, um, thinking about this and, um, well, distracting myself and trying to reconcile this 
irreconcilable problem with the fact I didn't have the equipment to even deal with it. And in a way, that was a great relief because I thought there's something fundamentally wrong with what's happening. And it made me feel that there was something fundamentally wrong with life. Um, I couldn't believe in God because I, I kept thinking, well, there must have been a before God. And that just didn't help me with the God factor. And uh, particularly as I you know, was told God was like the creator, so I wanted to know who created him or her. I think I was told it was a him. And, um, and then throughout my life, I've always had a, um, a sense that the rational mind is a wonderful thing, and I like to think, and I like to um, have a sort of have arguments, I suppose, you know, in the sense of discussing things. I like to be provocative and usually take present something I don't really believe, but I always present it as though I really do, and I usually get people going on it, and uh, and then I can see the fault of the argument by. You know the way they they argue with me. I, I quite I used to do it as a sport, but recently I've discovered that people don't like it, and uh, and they always think I'm serious. Um, so I try not to do it. But you know the devil gets the better of me sometimes. Um, I had a profound distrust of science all through my life. I trusted science to produce medicines that would cure me. Um, I trusted science to produce aeroplanes that could fly me to the other side of the world and all the wonderful things that science um, um, could produce and could I used to be an engineer when I was um, when I, in my early 20s I was an engineer um, used to design things um, I was always interested in applied mathematics and I always thought pure mathematics and pure science that, you know science that's trying to find the smallest particle I thought was completely flawed right from... I don't even, didn't even know why people bothered because it seemed to me like a ridiculous thing to do to even assume that there was a smallest particle because then you had to know how it got there in the first place. So um, that's how I became... have this sort of distrust of science. But do you ever do that? Do you ever sit and wonder? You know, do you ever sit and sort of like on a sunny day in your garden, you're looking at a flower... And you think, oh, there's a flower there. And suddenly you become aware of the flower and it's, it's, you become aware of beauty. And then you might just start reflecting, how did it get there? How did it come into existence? Where did it come from? Well, you know it's a plant, you know it came from a seed and you know it grew, etc. But then you might sort of wonder about, well, yeah, but it must have come from somewhere. And um, if you're sort of a bit self-reflective, you might sort of start realising you're having thoughts about things. Then you might think, where did thought come from? Where did the thought come from that thought about where a plant came from? And um, you might wonder then about just being alive. I know a lot of people find death a mystery. Quite honestly, I find being alive totally mysterious. Um, it's, it's not like I really even understand what it is to be alive. I know I'm standing here, at least I, I assume I'm standing here. I assume I'm not dreaming this. I mean, I might be, but uh, I'm just assuming that I am here. But what does it all mean? What does it, you know, what, what's it all about? I mean, what about your life? Is it right? Does it feel right? Are you living the right life? 
If you're not, what sort of life should you be living? And if you don't know, how do you know you're not living the right life? Did you get that? <laughs> if, you, if you feel there's something missing, well, it would seem to suggest there is something missing in your life. And you might, um, you might have reflected, well, yeah, there's something missing in my life. There's some sort of emptiness there that's not being filled. For, um, that's not being um, filled. And um, you know, for most people, most things go well in life. Some people have terrible experiences and so on. But many people do have that nagging feeling, don't we? Of like, there is something missing. It's not quite right. And I imagine that's why you're here. I imagine all of you are here because something doesn't feel quite right to you. Otherwise you would be somewhere else, wouldn't you? You'd be just doing what you do that you enjoy doing. And, uh, well, maybe this is what you enjoy doing. Do you enjoy coming to a building, sitting, listening to someone, rattling on about something, and that's stimulating. Maybe that's nice. But I suspect the majority of people here have the same sort of nagging feeling. There's something not quite right, and that life isn't all it appears to be. And um, this, yeah, so what, what is it? But most people seem to go through life without that, bothering about that nagging feeling. And if you do have it, it's sort of like you find ways of distracting yourself from it, displacing it with something else. And it's only at those moments in life where you have um, some sort of really big um, experience like um, loss, you lose someone you love, um, close friend, family member, or you break up in a relationship, or something seriously goes wrong, maybe you discover you've got some sort of terrible illness, that you might sort of start, you might stop for a moment and think, what is it all about? What, what, what's it all about? And if, you, if there was too much suffering and things were... Um, things were just so bad you might just think what's the point I could just end it all of course you don't know what that means do you because you don't know if you end it all whether it really ends I mean supposing it doesn't end I think it's what Shakespeare said in Hamlet you know to be or not to be but he says well supposing it's all a dream but supposing the dream of death is worse than the dream of life and uh, you might end life only to enter into the dream of death, which might be far worse than the dream of life. So you don't know. And am I, am I sort of provoking you a little bit? Oh, good. <laughs> so, you know, it's the sort of thing that um, I'm trying to get you to, to, um, to think about. So we, we're born, we go to school, we grow up, we maybe get a job, a profession, if we're lucky, education. And then what happens? Well, some of us get married, we have children, and then we wonder later on when the children grow up and have more children, and they leave us and have all expectations of us, what was the point of that? And, um, and then you look at, um, if it doesn't happen to you, you look at other people, you think, well, you're getting old, I'm 63 now, and uh, you know, it's that age where you start thinking, yeah, well, I've got a few more years left, I hope. Um, and I look at my father, who's 95, and I think, oh, another 30 years. <laughs> um, but, you know, will I, will I live that long? 
And then what will happen is I die. And I think, well, what was the point of all that? You know, did it mean anything? Did it, ha- did it have to have a meaning? And uh, for me, I guess it did. It needed to... It's as though there is this nagging feeling that there is something wrong. And this is what really got me to be a Buddhist, is that just life seems such a mystery, such a, um, a difficult thing. I, I just couldn't go on um, living life in the usual way um, I had it all set up. I had a career and a little family when I was very young, and it was all going along those railway lines of, you know, towards old age and disease and death. And uh, I suddenly decided to get off and uh, to do something different. So I became a Buddhist, and it completely transformed my life. One of the things I learned being a Buddhist is that um, all you can really know is what you perceive. You can believe what people tell you if you want to, but at the end of the day, you have perception, and in perhaps that's all you have. You have what someone once called a perceptual situation. There's some sort of object in this perceptual situation, which is called the world, all the objects around us. But you only know those objects are around there because you can touch them, you can see them, you can hear sounds, you can smell things, you can taste things. And uh, you know they're there, and you put them all together with your mind in consciousness, and so you've got this picture of what the world is like. Just think about it. That's what we're doing all the time. We're just creating a sort of uh, a reality on the basis of what's coming in through our ears and eyes and nose, tongue, etc. And our consciousness doing something to it and it's creating a reality and what's mysterious about it is we all seem to create the same reality and then we believe it's all real Um, which is good in a way because you know if we didn't believe that walls were solid we'd keep banging our head on them and uh, having difficulties but we have this shared reality and and then you know people come up with all sorts of ideas about how this reality originated um, there's a story in, in the Buddhist tradition that um, the first sort of god, um, the first Brahma, he happened to just become aware he was in a world. Ah, there's a world. And then some more beings appeared. And he thought, I must have created those. So he told them, I'm the god that created you. And they believed him. And uh, so it went on. And everyone said, that was Brahma who created you. And so everyone believed it was, he, he was the creator. Um, no one asked the question I would have asked, well, who created you, Brahma? And uh, he would have pro- probably said, That's a, don't ask that question, because I'm Brahma, and I'm beyond that question. What about consciousness? You know, we talk about mind as though it exists. Now, there is a thing called brain. That's that grey stuff that's in our head which probably most of us haven't seen, but we've seen pictures of, and we believe those pictures are of the real thing. And, uh, and even grey, is it really grey? But anyway, we've got a shared reality that calls it grey. Um, what is mind? Where is your mind? Is it in your head? Is it in your heart? Is it in your feet? Is it in your whole body? Is there a mind? Do you have a mind? you ever thought about that? We all sort of talk about mind. 
It's interesting, when you listen to the word mind trying to be translated into other languages like German or Swedish, there isn't a word for mind. So it's only the English I have a mind. <laughs> other countries have consciousness and sort of um, spirit, I suppose, or something like that. Um, but mind is a very, very difficult word to translate because it's slightly um, contextual that you use the word in many, many different ways, like mind your own business. You know, it's, I never had it in my mind. I did that, etc. So, you know, but we, we, we go along as though that consciousness is an actual thing, that there really is a mind. And what about our behaviour? What about ethics? Well, apparently, we all share a basic ethical, the same sort of basic ethical principles. I was listening to a radio programme about someone who'd done some research, had gone all around the world, um, including into, into places like the Amazonian jungle, and just asking different groupings, religious groupings, about what their basic ethics were. And um, more or less, they're all the same. It's as though we all share the same basic ethical principles. Um, not to kill, not to kill other human beings, that is. Not to steal, not to lie, and, and so forth. So there seems to be a sort of a natural ethics that we all share with one another, whether we have a religious um, belief system or not. I did come across one in, in a book I was reading recently, one um, society that didn't believe in homicide as being bad. This was the um, Spartans of ancient Greece. Apparently they thought it was a good thing to go off and kill someone, and that's what they used to train their young men and women to do to become citizens and they had to go off and kill someone so that was a bit of an aberration a bit of a difference of uh, type and um, but basically we have very we have shared ethics um, you know with, with every everyone else we have creative impulses we create things we have create lots of things that are useful and that's sort of understandable isn't it to create a saucepan to cook in and to create a motor car to travel from A to B because it's really important to get from A to B. We sometimes don't stop to wonder if it really is that important. But, yeah, we create things. But we have impulses to be creative in all sorts of ways, in some ways that are completely useless, like art. It's one of the definitions of art, that it's sort of useless. It, it's useless in the sense that you don't need it to survive. But it obviously has some use, otherwise people wouldn't spend lots of money on art unless it was for investment purposes. Um, but there is this sort of impulse that we have. And that's strange, isn't it? I mean, some people talk about being visited by the muse. So, you know, just sitting quietly and then suddenly this little verse comes into your mind. Where does it come from? Is it a thing that enters your so-called mind? And is it a real thing? Is it an entity that comes into you, into your entity? Does it sort of merge with you and then go away again? Because it doesn't seem to stay for very long. Well, there's another funny thing that we have, and that seems to be a religious impulse. When you think about it, most people in the world, well, in the whole of history, have been looking for you know, the answer to life, the 
what created what created me, what created mankind, <coughs> and so on. And it does seem as though human beings have within them a, a some sort of impulse to, to understand what you could call it a religious impulse. And um, I better get back to the Buddha now. Uh, <laughs> So um, I'll, I'll bring in the Buddha here. So this was someone who, who must have had this religious impulse. He must have had similar questions. There are, um, traditionally in the story, he woke up one day. He was a bit older than me, actually. He woke up one day and he saw what are called four sights. Whether he actually saw them or not, I don't know. It might just be a metaphor for what happened to him. But he saw um, old age, disease and death. There were three of the sights in terms of, you know, Someone getting old, someone being ill, someone dead, a corpse. And uh, he also saw a holy man, which was sort of like, ah, oh, there's someone here who's doing something that's in a way useless. You know, it's not like ploughing the field or making bread or fighting as a soldier. It's actually someone who's just seeking the truth. And uh, maybe that's really useful, but um, that seemed to be that impulse was there. And he was really... Um, I suppose, in a way, really opened up to that, and uh, his life was transformed. And he, like many people, um, many people that start seeking and some answer to this mystery of life, um, come to Buddhist centres. They might go to other centres. Might go to a, a Muslim um, place and or a church. Um, but people often, if they haven't just been brought up in as children in that particular re- religion, often want to go off and seek and find some answer. And um, according to tradition, to history, the Buddha actually found something. He discovered that um, it was possible to see things as they really are, sort of in a way outside of the normal rational mind, as though some other faculty had come into operation that allowed allowed him to see things as they really are. And... um, this completely transformed his life. He no longer felt he uh, needed to be attached to anything. Um, he saw all sorts of things like, well, I suppose fundamentally he saw that things are constantly changing, that nothing is really a thing, as a, an entity that, that, that you can't make into smaller parts. And he saw that even the smallest part was still made up of smaller parts, just went on and on, presumably partly because your mind creates it that way. And uh, he saw that actually human beings suffer because of this, that um, not knowing really what life was about, not understanding the real purpose of life. Whatever you're doing, at the end of the day, no matter how happy you are, um, no matter how distracted you are in your happiness, sooner or later reality comes back and you still haven't got the answer. It's just a temporary um, um, way of avoiding some suffering. And it's not like suffering is always like pain that you're feeling, but it's just suffering to realise that things are constantly moving. And just when you've got your life sorted out nicely. I remember this as a child, when I, or when I was a bit older actually, and uh, like paint my room, got it all arranged. I used to get really nervous because I knew it, it was liable to be all changed again. And I couldn't fix it down. And it, I used to find it a bit really uncomfortable. And I, I used to think sometimes, why did I bother? It would be easier just to, to let things change all the time and not, not, be, not care about it. 
But what the Buddha um, saw, which in many ways we can all see, and it's quite sort of a, a simple thing to see, is that things don't just suddenly appear. They seem to sometimes just seem to appear. But basically things arise in dependence upon other conditions. So a set of conditions will bring about um, a particular experience or um, a condition that you, you have at the moment. And that's a temporal thing, and it's only there depending upon these other conditions. And then when those conditions change, the thing that we were experiencing, the experience we're having, changes too. It's something that we, it's not really a theory, it's just something that we can all see for ourselves. We can all see that everything's changing. Even a mountain, when you look at a mountain, right, because that's how you perceive a mountain, you use the perception of sight to look at a mountain. Does it always look the same? Does it? No, of course it doesn't. If you look at it in the morning, when the sun's shining, it looks one colour. And if you look at it in the evening, when it's dark, it looks different again. So it's changed. Maybe the sort of rock structure hasn't changed much, but um, if there was a tree on it and it's lost some of its leaves, then that what you call a mountain with a tree on it has changed. So everything's changing. There's nothing permanent when you, you start reflecting on this. But... Um, Everything's, it's all to do with your perception of things and when you perceive something for long enough you will see it changing. Even if you sit in this room long enough someone will turn the lights out and it will look different, it will have changed. And um, if, um, well we won't pursue that idea but it just carries on and on. I don't want you to sit in this room all night long. Um, so you begin to see that there is a sort of dynamic interplay between things that um, everything's dependent upon other things. Have you ever thought about water? Where do you get your water? Tap. Or out of a bottle. Okay. Do you get your water out of the sky? Okay, well, some people do. I was staying in Australia, and most of the water I was drinking fell out the sky onto the roof and went into a tank and you drunk it. And that was quite simple. But... It did require someone to put a roof up to collect the water, and it did require someone to build a tank to, build, to collect the water in, and it required someone else to build a pump that pumped the water up into a tap so I could have the convenience of filling my water bottle from the tap. And most of us live in a city where getting our water, although when we turn the tap on seems such a simple thing, we pay our utility bills to get it, when you start thinking about it, it's a very, very complex business. Water comes through things called pipes. Pipes have to be manufactured. The water comes through these manufactured things and it's pumped using electric pumps. The pumps have to have a whole electricity supply. They need power stations. Those power stations have to have fuel. Someone has to take the fuel to the power stations. Someone has to run the power stations. Someone has to collect the water in the mountains, get it down to the pumps to be pumped into your tap. Think how many people you are dependent upon to get your water out of the tap. There's hundreds, thousands of people that you're dependent on. You might think you're an independent entity walking around, but you can't even survive 24 hours without other people providing you with water. Now, if it's raining all the time, you could walk outside and open your mouth and just drink, but that would be um, an option most people don't have, and, and it hasn't rained for quite a while. So um, you could be very thirsty and... 
So it's just an interesting way, in a very practical way, we are just so dependent upon things and other people. And although we have this idea that we're an independent entity walking around with lots of choice, we don't really have much choice. We need taps to get the water from for a start. That's one of the most basic things we, we need. And um, so we have that going on. There's another thing that's interesting about life is there seems to be certain ways in which um, things regulate themselves. Now, Isaac Newton discovered something very important, didn't he? Do you remember what it was? Something to do with apples. Gravity, that's right. He noticed apples, when they came off a tree, they didn't float away, but they fell to the earth. And uh, he thought about it, and he thought there must be some sort of force pulling them down there, and I don't know whether it was him or another person called it gravity. Um, but... Um, well, he did quite a lot of research into what gravity is. And do you know what gravity is? Mm-hmm. That's right. And which sort of two bodies? Two massive bodies. No. One massive body and a slightly smaller body. The smaller body is attracted to the bigger body. So that's the sort of massive big bodies create a field of gravity which pulls small things to us. Being small things, we're stuck to the earth. Um, we're not floating off into space. Um, so um, the universe seems to have this sort of gravitational sort of order, which we really believe in, don't we? You've probably not thought about this, but actually we all believe in gravity. Now, if I was to you know, pass something to someone at the back of the room, I wouldn't just throw it like that, would I? I wouldn't, no. <laughs> I know I have to throw it up to get there, because it's going to fall down. I've got 100% um, confidence and belief in gravity. And all of you have. You might not be thinking about it, but you live your lives. You, know, you walk down the stairs, careful that you're not to fall over, because you know gravity will get you. <laughs> and, um, and the other funny thing is, we're all being pulled towards the same point. That's the centre of the Earth. So we're all going towards, we're all sort of interconnected that way too. That's strange, isn't it? Death. Well, I don't know where death is. <laughs> um, that just becomes a bit of a mystery. So there's that sort of, um, there are things like um, dynamics, there are things like thermal dynamics. There are certain laws that seem to be um, just there in the universe. Now, if I was a child, I'd probably be wondering how they came to be there, but they, they just are there. And um, Buddhism seems to notice that there are sort of five categories of, um, of order of things, or laws, if you like to call them that. And there's what's called the physical um, category. That's organic things. So that's things like gravity, that there's matter, like big bodies attract little bodies. There's um, the category of living organisms, so plants and animals, well, let's first of all, plants and bacteria and things all come about because of certain laws. Um, they don't just have no laws. There's a sort of like things like photosynthesis, you know, the, the, the action of the sun on a plant causes it to, to do various things. There's animals. There's um, animals come into being by um, 
usually the bigger mammals copulating and they produce more animals. There's certain sort of laws to all these things that uh, or, or, or an order of things that comes about. And so far, you know, we're probably all very comfortable with that. We probably all believe in those things, I would imagine, if we ever you know, think about them. But then you can get on to other things like ethics. Why, why, why would there be ethics? Even, um, even evolutionists wonder about this, apparently. That, you, know, you might say, well, it's good not to kill other people because that's the way species survive. But um, sometimes pe- people do things that are completely altruistic and don't seem to have anything to do about survival. They just do things like save someone by giving up their own life when actually their life might be more important than the person's life they're saving. So there's some sort of inbuilt mechanism that we have, um, that we just have. And in Buddhism, there is a fourth and fifth sort of order of things. The fourth um, order of things is that um, is what's called karma. It's the principle that if you do, if you act, think, or speak um, in a way that is what you could call life-enhancing, that is not destructive of life, then you can expect probably things to go well for you. If you um, do something that is life-unenhancing, like killing you'll probably start noticing that things don't go so well for you. Um, Now, this gets quite complicated, um, this particular thing. First of all, there's an internal aspect to it. So if you ever have that experience of being really kind and generous to people, how do you usually feel? Good. What does good mean? Happy? Content? Pleased with yourself? Yeah? Yeah? And if you um, do something where you, you sort of feel like you're a bit tight or you're a bit rude or a bit harmful to someone, how, do you, how does that make you usually feel? Yeah. Makes you feel bad. <laughs> you feel, and, and very often the things that, people, that binds people together more than anything else is often the difficulties they have with one another. If you notice that the people you tend to think about most are the people you don't like. The people you like, you just, you know, they're, they're quite happy. But you're having to work out things to do with the people you don't like and how to get rid of them from your life <laughs> and uh, how to avoid them. You can spend a lot, a lot of time coming up with strategies of how you could just, you know, if that person wasn't in my workplace or in my life, it would be great. Usually when that person goes, someone else takes its place. So you start to wonder if it really is the person or is it something to do with you, um, if you really think about it and you're really honest with yourself. And this is a category of, of behaviour or of the order of things that Buddhists um, believe in as being um, that actions have consequences, that the basic principle, and we don't really use these words in Buddhism, but good to good, bad to bad. So if you um, do something that's um, generous, kind, and so on, things will go a bit easier for you in life. Um, apparently, I'll just tell you something, just digressing here, and I always warn not to digress too much because I have a mind that digresses everywhere. I was reading the other day that if you, get, if you had a screensaver that showed dollar bills floating across it all the time, 
you would become self-centred, lack, lacking in generosity, and basically mean. And people that have things like flowers and birds flying across their um, screensavers become generous, open-hearted, happier, and, and so on. This is in a book called um, um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, I think his name is. And it's, it's based on a lot of research that's been done. So, um, so yeah, you know internally that things will um, go well. Although we don't really believe it like we believe gravity, do we? It's not as obvious. Well, it is for some people, because every time you give a box of chocolates away and you feel good about yourself, you, you know, give them, and the person's really pleased and everyone's happy... You don't sort of think, oh, I'll keep doing that all the time because just everything goes a lot better, doesn't it? If I give chocolates everywhere and uh, be nice to people, they're usually nice back to me. And, um, but you don't really believe it because at some point you see too many dollar bills floating across the screen. And you think, hang on a minute, I have to hold on to these dollar bills. And um, So I'm not going to talk about money, but if you ever want to put any in a box when you leave here, <laughs> things will go much better for you. <laughs> And you'll feel good about yourself for a start. But what about the external things? Can you believe that? Well, I suppose only if you've been looking back over quite a long life can you actually see that when you went through phases where you were very tight, very um, unhelpful to people, unkind, you usually were unkind to yourself, and usually things become very difficult. Um, and there are times when you've been very generous. I, I find this at... Um, Basically, I used to be quite tight about money because I never used to have money and I was, came from quite a poor family. But I've gradually been learning that when I give money away, I seem to get more back. And I try not to do it so I get more back because that would just be a form of greed. But I try to do it with a, an open hand of generosity but sort of trusting that if I need something, people will help me. And it's been working wonders recently. I thought I'd... I won't tell you about the story. But it happens um, a lot. And uh, I, would, I would advise you to just notice you know, if things do go well for you when you're in that mood of open-hearted, generous, and, and so forth, and just see what, what life gives back to you. It gets a bit more complicated than this, and the way the Buddhists describe it is because you don't just have one life and then die. I mean, in some ways, that would be quite convenient because if, you, if life was got too problematic you could just stop it somewhere along that arc of life you know going up you're in a good time but it was horrible so I cut it off now just um, top myself and that's it that would be a, quite a simple answer to, to things wouldn't it but um, Buddhists actually think well that's no good doing that because that is a really unhelpful and even an unskillful action and it will only have consequences you'll have the dream of death and then you'll have the dream of another life. And the next life won't be as good and easy, possibly, as this life. Which sort of can explain why, when you're doing everything right in this life, it's still going wrong. Because what you did in the previous life might have been horrible. And um, it's not that you want to walk around feeling guilty about what you did in the last life, because you, you, you did something horrible. Because the best thing to do is do lots of good things in this life, being generous, hope-hearted, etc., and um, trust, just like in gravity, uh, have the trust in, uh, in actions have consequences, good to good, bad to bad, that things will get better for you. So that's the fourth category of um, Buddhist um, 
ways of seeing, of um, looking at life and so on. There's a fifth. And this is coming back really to the religious impulse. And um, this is probably what makes people seek religion. This is certainly the Buddhist way of, um, of describing it. It's as though all the conditioned um, processes that go on, and even Buddhahood itself, even becoming a Buddha, is, is um, dependent upon this particular category. It's as though something is... And you can't even say something, because once you say something, you start asking questions about this thing, right? But just like you talk about gravity as a, a force, right? When you really open your heart up to um, the possibilities of, for and this is where language gets complicated. You 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 have to you introduce words like spiritual, like something beyond the sort of materialistic and so. On. When you open your heart up to something else, you can begin to feel as though you're being drawn somehow in a certain direction. Um, now, you, you may not believe that, but um, that's probably because you haven't opened your heart up, heart up in, enough. But, uh, and you could ask yourself that question, you know, well, if I did try to open my heart up, could I experience it? And you'll only ever really believe it if you do experience it. So it's the choice is yours. You could walk around not believing it, or you could just try to open your heart up much more. This is one of the reasons why Buddhists spend a lot of time doing nothing. <laughs> we call it meditation. You know, we sit on cushions, um, like here, and then for probably for about two years you just sit there with pain. And um, you know, particularly if you're a keen young man or woman, you, know, you just think, right, I'm going to really get to grips with things. You sit there cross-legged and you think, wow, that's really painful. But every now and again you have this moment where something happens to you and something must happen to me because I did it for years, I think about 12 years, where I just kept sitting on cushions and I... I don't know why I'm doing this, not much is happening. But there must have been something happening because I kept being more and more confident that it was the right thing to do. So I kept doing it. And uh, things kept changing in my life. I had a lot more friends. I sort of stopped being so fearful of, and I started understanding that the mind has limits. You can't ask certain questions and understand things about perceptual situations and etc, etc. So I've come to believe that it's as though all of us are living on the surface of something which is a, isn't a thing. It's more like a flow, like a flow of energy. It's more of the nature of love. If you ask yourself, what is love? You can't get a pound of love, can you? Or a kilo of love. It's not a thing. But you know what love is. You know what the feeling of love is. So it's a bit like... Life is like a flow of something. And if you can tap into it, which usually requires you to sit still and do nothing, allow your mind just to become quiet, allow your heart just to open, allow yourself not to be frightened, but just be inquisitive and um, curious about what might happen. You can start becoming sensitive to as though some, as though some force is drawing you, is moving you, on and the direction that you feel it's moving you on in is is that open-hearted kindly generous thing and that's why it usually feels good to be like that because in a sense this is you don't have to believe me but this is what i believe this is what i've experienced is that um, when you open yourself up to it you feel like you're doing the right thing 
And this brings me back to the beginning of the talk. You may, in the end, have no idea why you're alive or what life is or what's going to happen at death. But what you can have confidence in is that there is something moving you. And if you go with it, if you allow yourself to be guided by it, which means being in contact with it more and more, everything feels right. Right.